evening, everyone. Glad you came out tonight. We're uh, making our way through the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapters 11 through 13 tonight. If you need a Bible, George is up. He'll give one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. You may have noticed um, we added some more chairs in the sanctuary. We were really kind of full on Sunday, and so we got rid of, we had like 65 chairs behind the curtain over here. We had a green room over here, so we got rid of all of that, pushed all the curtains back, and had to spread it out. But in spreading it out, we had to then move the speakers, so they're in a different place. So you might have to rearrange your seats according to your uh, preference as far as speaker volume and stuff. So, well, I like it really loud. I sat here. Well, we have to move over there now, So, but I like it soft. Well, then sit back over here, but... Um, but it's just uh, we've been uh, getting fuller and fuller on Sundays, and, and I'm t- anticipating it's a good thing. I am anticipating Easter in a few months, and, and I'm thinking, man, we better get these chairs out. And so uh, kind of cool the way God blessed us with the chairs. Um, we ordered them, and they kept sending us damaged ones. And it's just the back of them are all damaged. And, and I'd call them up, and, hey, we've got 20 damaged now. All right, we'll just keep them. We'll send you 20 more. So... <laughs> We put all the damaged ones against the wall so you can't see the back of them. And we have like 407 seats in here now. So, so I ordered 320. So we got like 75 seats, extra chairs for, for nothing. But praise God, it's what God provides. But um, So with that, Judges uh, chapter 11 through 13, I've decided to uh, title my study this evening to Vow or Not to Vow. And uh, you'll find what that means when we close. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we could spend together in your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here and, and uh, just uh, quickening our hearts, our minds to things you would have us to hear uh, this evening in our lives, Lord, and apply in our lives. We thank you for your word, Lord, and the work that it does in our hearts. And we just pray, Lord, move in our hearts this evening. We pray, Lord, you continue just to bless the words you've given me, Lord. And I thank you for the sweet time of worship we had. We commit this night to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We know that the book of Judges is all about making right choices uh, versus wrong choices. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20, the Lord said to the people of Israel, before they entered the promised land, he said, if you love and obey the Lord, you'll live long in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then Moses gave the warning in Deuteronomy 30:17, if you don't keep the word of the Lord, the Lord says, if you're drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, then you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Well, we know they crossed over into the Jordan and, and uh, they made right choices and they made wrong choices. And they went back and forth and back and forth. Israel sins and worship idols. The nation conquers them, makes them slaves. They cry out to God in supplication and ask for his help. God raises up a savior, a judge to deliver Israel. God empowers the judge with his spirit and he overthrows the enemy. His victory is uh, followed by a period of serenity and peace, only to be interrupted again with the round of sin, servitude, supplication, savior, spirit, and serenity. This cycle happens 11, or rather seven times in the book of Judges. So chapter 11, however, opens a little differently. There, there's battle lines being drawn. Look back at chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, 
Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Well, chapter 11 answers that question. Look now at verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was mighty, a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead begot Jephthah, Gilead's wife, four sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding, raiding with them. So in Gilead, there was a strong and mighty man named Jephthah. Unfortunately for him, he was a son of a harlot, a prostitute. When his younger half-brothers grew to be men, they ran him out of town. He ran away and lived in the land of Tob, where he became the leader of a bunch of tough guys. They were the Tob gang, you know, the, a band of raiders. Probably had black and silver robes on, I don't know, and customized donkeys that, you know, named Harley and, and you know, really loud as they drove through town. But think about this man, Jephthah, a man with three hurdles to overcome before he can become a leader for his country. He's the son of a harlot. He has been exiled by his brothers, and he is a leader of a despised, rejected group of men. I mean, not very likely to be used, a man to be used in the world's eyes, but you see, God moves in ways that sometimes surprise us. As he chooses men that are despised in this world, takes them, humbles them, and uses them mightily. You know, you hear, I, I hear of, of uh, guys that were gang members and you know, even served time in prison and, and they came to know the Lord and now they're, they're pastoring churches. I, I know a few, personally. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians one twenty seven that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And what we'll see next is whom the Lord calls, he enables. Look at verse 4. came to pass after time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead want to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So they originally shunned Jephthah until they needed him. A fierce battle was ahead. It required a man of courage and skill and, 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 and daring. And all of a sudden, Jephthah's pedigree, how he was born, who his, his, his mom was, it didn't matter. All that matters is that there was this fierce battle ahead and it required a man of, of courage and skill and, and uh, steady nerves. So they summoned Jephthah to lead them in the battle. Verse 7. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. You know, in in the heat of the battle, in in the wake of a disaster, folks put aside their pettiness and pull together. You know, there's no prejudice, you know, in in a crunch. They say, hey, we're all on the same team. Come fight for us. Verse 9. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? When the battle's over, am I going to still be the leader here? Verse 10. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, yeah, sure, of course. The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not, if we do, not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord of Mizpah. 
Now Jephthah sent messengers to the, to the king of the people of Ammon, so he could start right away, saying, What do you have against me that you've come to fight against me in the land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. So in Jephthah's first attempt to diplomacy, to find a solution between the Israelites and the Ammonites, he sends a letter saying, hey, why are you guys fighting against us? What's up with you guys? Their response, we read, was that when Israel came up from Egypt in the Exodus, they had taken their land. So if you just give back our land, we'll leave you alone. Doesn't that sound familiar? Aren't we hearing that today? They're asking land for peace. You want, to, you want peace? Give back our land. Over 3,000 years later, it's just still, still the same old story. I wish more Jews and leadership in Israel would do what Jephthah does here next, though, because in response to their claim on the land, he gives a brief history lesson. Hey, it's our land, and I'll show you how it's our land. He recounts Israel's past victory over the Amorites, Israel's land acquisition didn't come at the expense of Ammon. Their land was was the spoils of battle. They took possession of only the land that God enabled them to conquer. Look at verse 14. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. They came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Hey, please, let us pass through your land into our place. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and camped in Jehaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all the people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country fair and square. Verse 22, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? I like Jephthah. He says, uh, hold on there a minute, buckaroo. You've got this all wrong. Okay, Israel didn't take the land from you. We won it. And if you knew your own history, uh, when the Israelites got to Kadesh about 300 years ago, they asked if they could pass through. And you said, oh, no, 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 no way. Numbers chapter 20, verse 17 to 25 uh, records this. And, and he says, and then you guys attacked us. Listen, Jephthah, he, he was a, a, a rough guy. He wasn't a dummy. He knew Israel's history and he knew Israel was blameless. Israel had wanted peace, but instead they were attacked. And so in defending themselves, they won the territory fair and square. Same scenario today. But that's the way it is in war. I mean, think of how even today Israel is constantly pressured to return land at one when attacked. It's ridiculous. But I like what Jephthah does next. He says, listen, if you want this land back, why don't you go ask your God for it? Look at, look at verse 24. Will you not possess whatever... Shemash, your God gives you to possess? 
So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strike against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Awar and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. What's the lesson here? You cannot live peaceably with people who do not want peace. You just can't. Jephthah's diplomacy didn't do good as the Ammonites today totally disregarded his letter. So, so they just need the warning. Watch out because if God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced towards the people of Ammon. Notice verse 29, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Jephthah now joins a select group of people who had the Holy Spirit come upon them in the Old Testament. The Spirit was upon Moses and his 70 elders in Numbers 11. Numbers 24, Balaam, believe it or not, had the Holy Spirit come upon him. Judges 3, verse 10, Athenial, uh, the first judge and Caleb's younger brother, was filled with the Spirit. Gideon, most recently, in chapter 6, uh, and now Jephthah. And we'll see this happen to more guys as we continue through the Old Testament. And sometimes, in instances like Balaam, Samson, Samson and King Saul, the Spirit would also leave people. Now we know today, the Holy Spirit is permanently given uh, to us when we become believers. When we believe that Jesus died for our sins, rose again from the grave, uh, asked him to forgive us our sins, God then breathes in us his Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. According to Second Corinthians one twenty-one twenty-two, it's the Lord who establishes us with, uh, with Christ and has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Holy Spirit living inside of us is that, that guarantee we are believers, we are a child of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom having, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I love that. Holy Spirit, it's sealed, signed, sealed, delivered. Hasn't, the Holy Spirit wasn't given to us temporarily as he was before Jesus Christ ascended to heaven. He, he is with us as a guarantee of our inheritance forever, giving us that full assurance of hope of our salvation. On top of that, think about what Jesus instructed his disciples after Jesus rose from the dead, Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit comes upon us for a special purpose, to be that bold witness for Jesus Christ, to really engage in, in a spiritual battle for the Lord. In the same way, Jephthah now has the Holy Spirit come upon him and empowers him to boldly lead Israel into this battle against the Ammonites. See, the secret to his success, however, was the Spirit of the Lord. Because the battle was over before it even began. The Ammonites didn't stand a chance. But sadly, Jephthah does a foolish thing before entering this battle and learns a very harsh lesson about making a vow and it brings a little bit of controversy in understanding what happens. And, and I really don't like this. It, it, it's, it's a sad thing. Let, let's read it and you'll see what I mean. Verse 30. 
And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What a crazy vow like that. Jephthah was offering the Lord something that the Lord didn't ask for. The Lord didn't ask for it for a vow. Listen, better to offer the Lord what he has required, uh, uh, your own life as a living sacrifice, not somebody else's. Look at verse 32, read on. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them in, into his hands. And he defeated them from Aurora as far as Minnith, 20 cities, and to Abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Oh, man. No. I made this vow. I'm going to offer as a sacrifice. First thing I see when I come back from battle, you just imagine the look on his face. Verse 35. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter... You have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what you have gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and be well my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. What a story. What a controversial story at that. When Jephthah comes home, there was no bull or goat that he saw first. It was very own daughter, his only child, celebrating his return with dancing and tambourines. Now, how, how do we take this? I mean, this is crazy. Did he actually offer as a sacrifice? Did he actually keep that vow? Well, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. Number one, there are scholars that disagree as to whether or not Jephthah should have kept his vow or broken it. For sure, there's much to be said about keeping your vows. We must not rashly make vows to the Lord, for he takes them quite seriously. Numbers 30 consists of a person's obligation to keep their vows. It says there, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So it's better not to make a vow and to serve God than to vow to serve and to fail to do that. But here's the second thing. Some scholars disagree over how he kept the vow. Some say that the word and in verse 31 can also be translated or, and that Jephthah offered his daughter as a living sacrifice in perpetual virginity because human sacrifice is totally against God's will. So they say verse 31 should read that Jephthah said, whatever comes out of the doors of my house shall surely be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. The problem with that is that it's the word and. It's not the word or. So whatever comes out of the doors of my house shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer up as a burnt offering. So quite literally, the vow reads, Jephthah would have to carry out his vow and kill his daughter. Now, our hearts being what they are, 
We really want to lean towards the fact that she was not killed, but she's just dedicated to the Lord for the rest of her life. And there's good cause to think about that. The daughter, as respectful as she is to her father, she says to her father in verse 37, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and be well my virginity. Now, you would think that she would say, hey, let me go and be well my soon death. I'm going to be put to death pretty soon. So let me go wander in the mountains and, 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 and you know, think about being offered up as a burnt offering. But she doesn't do that. And then verse 39 says, at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which, which she had vowed. Then he says, she knew no man. Says she knew no man. So I want to think... <laughs> That Jephthah offered his daughter to the Lord as to never marry or have children. But again, there's scholars that say, nope, he killed her. And they say that because of the culture of the time child sacrifice was, was quite common. But I'll let you decide. But the point is this. When it comes to making vows, be careful. Because whether Jephthah killed his daughter or not, whether he sent her away, it was a tremendous sacrifice. And listen, if Jephthah had simply gone to battle without the vow the Lord still would have given him the victory. And he could have come back and offered a burnt offering to the Lord without the sorrow and, and the stumbling going on here. But Jesus said in Matthew 5.37, let your yes be yes and your no be no. James tells us in James 5.12, but most of all, brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no that you'll not sin and be condemned. Now this brings us to chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim, gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house on, on you and with fire. Now, remember these guys? It's like, not these guys again. Remember back in chapter 8, when Gideon led the Israelites in the battle against the Midianites, the men of Ephraim complained. So, Man, how come you didn't invite us to go fight the battle with you guys? How come we didn't go in the first wave of attack? How come we didn't, you know... Uh, only had to, how come we only could do the mop-up operation? They complained because they didn't get to see more action. And instead of rejoicing in the victory, they complained about the strategy. But here they are again, chapter 12, on the hills of Jephthah's victory, we see them complaining once again. Now, the way Gideon handled it, he handled it with, with diplomacy. He said, hey, you guys, uh, what, what you've got done in comparison is, 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 is great. I mean, it's great. He flattered them. But you know, Jephthah, he was from a different world, <laughs> different mold. He, he doesn't flatter them. He actually goes after them. Now, in all fairness, they did threaten him first. We will burn your house down with fire. And I have to think Jephthah was in, in no mood to mess around with these guys after having to, to fill that vow that he made with his daughter. He's going, really? I bet he's just fed up to you here. So look at verses 2 to verse 6. And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? He said, if he said no, they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. 
Then they would take him and kill him at the forge of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. So Jephthah, he, he, he fights against these contentious Ephraimites and blocks their way home. Then anytime anyone tries to cross the Jordan to escape back to the Ephraim, Ephraim they said, well, are you an Ephraimite? Uh, yeah, certainly. You know, uh, or no, they say, no, 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 we're not, we're not. But there's one sure way to find out. All they had to do was say the word uh, Shibboleth. See, that was the Hebrew word for an ear of corn or a grain of wheat. But because Ephraimites had a regional accent, uh, Shibboleth would, would come out Thibboleth. <laughs> kind of like, uh, you know, you know the Larry the Cucumber on VeggieTales. Are you an Ephraimite? No. Okay, say, say Shibboleth. Thibboleth. Kill him. <laughs> Didn't do it right, you know. Oh, no, no, no. I said Sibboleth. I said Sibboleth. No, you didn't kill him. Certainly, if you were, uh, you know, a Gileadite with a speech impediment, you wouldn't want to do any traveling at that time. I mean, Larry, the cucumber, would have been a chopped cucumber. So, what can we learn from this? Well, we can liken this to us as believers and the words that we say uh, to others around us. Do they know that we're Christians? Can they tell by the way we talk that we're believers in Jesus? Do people know that you're a Christian by the things that you say? Or, or are you no different than the rest? Is Shibboleth or, or Sibboleth? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, that no corrupt communication, uh, rather no word proceeded out, but that it was good for necessary edification that they may impart grace to the hearers. Jesus also said, a good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. What comes out of our mouth? Our words are you justified or condemned? How can our words justify us? Well, Paul answers that for us in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. While Jephthah's his time is up, look at verse 7. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. And he had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. He judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. And Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrethonite, judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys. He judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrethonite, died and was buried in Pyrethon, in the land of Ephraim, in the mountains of the Amalekites. So after Jephthah's death, three more minor judges ruled. So it seemed that Israel enjoyed over 30 years of relief from from affliction before once again falling into evil. Well, now we come to chapter 13, a very well-known story of Samson. We will look at just the prophecy of his birth and his birth uh, this evening here in chapter 13. Then we'll finish this story up, up next week. But with that, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. And again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Again, over and over again. Every week, you know, it seems to quote Judges 2.19, where it says there, And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods. But this time it's going to be different. Because now you might say we are introduced to the children of Israel's arch enemy. 
the Philistines. Da, 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 da. I mean, this is like the, you know, the stormtroopers from Star Wars. You know, these are these are the bad guys. The Philistines came from the lineage of Noah's son Ham. They were powerful warriors. So powerful, in fact, that God didn't want the Israelites to see what they were capable of when they first left Egypt. That's why he took the, the Israel a different way through the Red Sea. Listen to Exodus 3, verse 13, 17 through 18. It says, Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. In other words, the children of Israel would have freaked out if they encountered the Philistines that early on. Now, the Philistines didn't really become a factor in Israel's history until the days of Jephthah. Back in chapter 10, uh, we read there that the anger of the Lord's hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So after this, now the Philistines will continue to be the enemy of Israel, all the way through the kings of Israel as well. So look now at verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Here we read the angel of the Lord. It's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before he took on the human body in his birth. We'll see more of that later on. But the Lord appears to Mrs. Manoah and springs on this special announcement to her. You're going to have a son. And he says, not just any son. He said, he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb. From before he was born, he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, this reminds me of what Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 115, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows everything about us. He calls each of us to live separate lives apart for him. And we see this even in the womb. God says, I have a plan for you. Now, not to the extreme of the Nazarite vow for us, but the Nazarite vow, let me talk about that for a minute, was made by a man or woman to dedicate themselves to the Lord. It was the time of separating themselves to the Lord. Uh, but it would go a little further. If you took the Nazarite vow, you would abstain from the fruit of the vine, not only alcohol, but, but vinegar, grape juice, grapes, raisins. You cannot cut your hair during the whole time of this vow, and you're not to be defiled by touching a corpse. The vow usually lasts for a fixed amount of time from 30 to 100 days. At the end of the time, then the man would be immersed in water, cut his hair, Make an offering that would include a lamb, and a ram, a basket of breads and cakes. Now, the Nazarite vow carried all the way through even to the early church. In fact, in Acts chapter 18, verse 18, we read that Paul the Apostle had his hair cut off when he came to Centria because he had taken a vow. Then in Acts chapter 21, we read about four other men who had taken the Nazarite vow. Now, don't get this mixed up with Jesus, who was called a Nazarene because he was from the town of Nazareth. That's different than taking a Nazarite vow. The words just sound the same. Now, in the case of Samson, God actually made the vow for him. 
I mean, this should remind us that our children are known to God. And we should desire God's will for their life. Samson was to be a Nazarite from conception. So his mom had to abstain from alcohol lest he break the vow before he was born. Not only that, not that it's okay you should drink alcohol when you're pregnant without a vow. But, but you see, God had set apart Samson from the womb for a special mission, a special purpose. Look at verse 6. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. What I find interesting is that God spoke to Mrs. Manoah first. Then she takes what the Lord says to her and goes and tells her husband. Guys, how do you feel when your wife relays something that the Lord showed her to you? Do you take it seriously? Or do you go, ah, come on, everybody knows that. (laughs) You didn't know that? As you pretend that the thing she said wasn't the most profound thing you've ever heard in your life, even though it was. I mean, you're just humiliated because God spoke to her in that way and not you. But notice also Mrs. Manoah went right to her husband and shared what the Lord had shown her. Wife, do you, do you do that? Do you share with your husband what God is showing you as you spend time in the Word? Now we see here Mr. Manoah trusted his wife's revelation and, it, and he brings himself to prayer, to seeking the Lord. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach what we shall do for the child who will be born. I like this about Manoah. He wants to be a good parent. He wants to do what God wants him to do. So he prays. Man, praying for our kids is great. Lord, help us to be good parents. Help us to lead our kids the way you want us to lead them. Now, now, don't let anyone fool you. Parenting is not easy. I mean, we need to be seeking the Lord all the time. I mean, I'm blessed that my kids are all grown. But I found this illustration about parenthood. Maybe some of you moms can relate. Number one, being a parent is like being pecked to death by a duck. Raising teenagers is a lot like nailing jello to a tree. Number three, your life's golden age is a period in your life when your kids are too old to require a babysitter and too young to take the car. I like that one. Number four, shouting at your children to get cooperation is about the same as steering your car using the horn. Same results. Number five, a home's temperature is best maintained by warm hearts, not cold words or hot heads. Number six, the joy of motherhood, what a woman experiences after she puts the last child to bed. Number seven, cleaning house with the children at home is a lot like shoveling snow during a blizzard. Number eight, any child can tell you that the sole purpose of a middle name is so that he or she can tell when they are really in trouble. Number nine, practice what you preach even covers never letting them see you snag those ding-dongs for breakfast. And number 10, the only two child experts are those who do not yet have any of their own. All the more reasons we as parents need to be praying for our kids, no matter how old they are, praying for your grandkids. Here Manoah prays. He seeks the Lord. And in verse 9 we read, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. This is interesting to me because we read that God heard Manoah's prayer but responds to Mrs. Manoah. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it would seem to me that the Lord is treating them as if they're one. 
They were united in heart. They were united in purpose. The Lord knew if I spoke to the one, you were speaking to both of them. Yeah, Manoah, he was the head of the family. His wife was the helper, but it was still all in unity in that oneness. And the Lord honored that. But I do want to say, again, that normally our wives are more spiritually discerning than we are as men because I think our wives can be more sensitive. And so I, we can be a little more thick-headed, I think, but that's just the way the Lord made us. But, but So it seems that they can sense the Lord speaking in their hearts easier than we can a lot of times. Look at verse 10. Hearing this from the Lord, then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So Mrs. Manoah was given a prenatal prescription to follow. And though, ladies, you should be careful what you take in when you're pregnant, make certain sacrifices at that time. It's also to his parents. We need to make necessary sacrifices in our own lives. We need to have a postnatal, you know, a separate, you know, a, a, a precaution. You know, you know, raising these kids and trying to stay healthy and, and the spiritual diet, taking God's word. Look at verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. See, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah did not realize they were talking to Jesus. So they wanted to show, uh, you know, the proper hospitality. So Manoah asked the messengers to stay for dinner. Basically, he said, hey, let me fire up the barbecue. You know, why don't you stay for dinner? We'll put on a goat and the old barbie for you, and we'll have a good time. Verse 16. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. The Lord was not, he, the Lord was not being rude by refusing the food. He was just something that, letting them know that everything that he promised them about Samson was all in grace. It's all about grace. You know, not to put them under any obligation. Nothing you can do, nothing you can do to earn what I'm doing for you with your son. But he says, hey, if you want to express your thanks, then it should be in an offering to the Lord. And I think at this point, the lights are coming on uh, for Manoah. Again, sometimes I think it takes a little bit longer for us guys. But you can picture Manoah thinking, Manoah thinking, well, wait a second, there's something different about this guy. He doesn't want to eat with us. He wants us to make a sacrifice instead. Look hmm, at verse 17. The Moa said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? I love that verse. Again, this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. His name is wonderful. Who is wonderful? Isaiah 9, 6. It's Jesus, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Wonderful. Same angel of the Lord that spoke to Abraham, appeared to Moses in the burning bush, stood in Balaam's donkey's way, and commissioned Gideon. Verse 19, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as a flame went up towards heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. 
When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. So it may have been Mrs. Manoah in the beginning, but they both together in the end, they're worshiping the Lord, that they're falling down on their faces before the Lord. In verse 21, when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, Relax, hubby. Calm down. <laughs> if the Lord has desired to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hand, nor would he have shown us all the things, nor would he have told us such things as these at these at this time. In other words, I, I love this. The, the, the husband is crying out to the wife, Oh, no! What's going on? This is not good. We're going to die. We're going to die. Honey, we're going to die. She says, Calm down, big guy. We're not going to die. If the Lord desired to kill us, he would have done it already. Once again, I mean, us guys, don't just count the insights that, are, that our wives have. But here's the thing I do like. I, I do like that Manoah could share his spiritual fears with his wife. This is a, an open communication between the two of them. She could comfort him. He could comfort her. They had this great relationship together in the Lord. And I love that. Finally, verse 24. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew. And the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana Dan between Zorah and Estel. So we can safely assume that Mrs. Manoah followed the prenatal prescriptions. Still with her preparation, Samson needed the Spirit of God upon him. His mom and dad, mom and dad could only do so much. It was a lot, but he must walk with God for himself. Verse 25 says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. That's upon Samson. Upon Samson. Now, sometimes we see God using certain people in amazing ways, and we, we think, well, God could never do that for me. But understand, everyone has a place that they start at. When we see the Spirit of God working in Samson, doing mighty deeds of strength, the Spirit has already been working in his life. And then as he grew, got stronger and stronger. And all that to say, be faithful that God do that work in your life where you are. Verse 24 says that Samson grew and the Lord blessed him. As he grew, the Lord blessed him. And then, uh, you know, we know that when God blesses us, it comes with great responsibility. You know, too much is given, much is required. In other words, for all God has blessed us with, he simply asks us to be faithful. So as we close, like Jephthah, be careful about making vows God hasn't called you to make. And as with the Manoah, Samson parents, be careful to keep the vows that God has called you to make. But more than that, just be faithful in what God has called us to do, no matter what, and we'll be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we know that these things recorded in your word are left for us as examples, Lord, to follow. And Lord, we want to be real careful, Lord, when uh, we're making vows, Lord. Lord, you are a king. You are a Lord. You are a God. You take care of us. Lord, help us just to seek your will always and not make, make rash vows, rash statements, Lord, but to follow you through your word. Thank you, Lord, for just an opportunity to, to gather tonight, Lord. Lord, help us to continue to be faithful to what you've called us to do, that we might bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.